Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. excited to share God's word with you. Uh, I'm just going to be a little bit forthright, and this was probably one of the tougher messages to prepare. And you'll see this in the next three chapters, in chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. It is probably one of the most uh, debated and argued uh, amongst theologians about what this passage means. But I'm going to try to present to you as best as I can so that we can have some clarity and understand how God is working even through the Israelites and how that applies for us. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9. It's hard to believe we've covered eight chapters thus far. We're halfway done, and we're going to finish this all the way into probably May, and we will cover the 16 chapters of the book of Romans. So as you're turning to that and also turning to your notes, hopefully your leaders send out the notes to you, I wanted to ask a question. As I'm wondering how many of you, as you're watching me right now, how many of you have a really strong sense of fairness or if you will like injustice when you see things that are not right when you see injustice happening around you something that stirs within your heart and as I was thinking about this I realized you don't have to go very far you just have to look at your life and the things that you have experienced to be able to come to the conclusion whether you have the strong sense of a desire to fight injustice or whatever fairness that you want to be able to give across the board to whoever it is that you're meeting with or the things that you see. And I was thinking about those of you who have a sibling. Can I get an amen, right? Any of you who have a sibling, I'm telling you, you understand what fairness or unfairness and injustice is all about. Because if you grew up and you always got me the hand-me-downs and you're like, this is unfair. When the older brother or sister gets this and that, you're like, this is unfair. Or if you're the youngest one. You're spoiled out of your mind. So that might be one of the reasons why you're struggling in your life. But anyway, that when you think about you, you got away with everything. And so all the older ones are saying, this is unfair. I didn't get a cell phone until like this old, or I didn't get this. And so there's a sense of unfairness and a lack of justice. Also, if you are part of a minority group, whether you are a minority here in Hong Kong because you come from a different country or you might be a gender-wise, maybe sometimes because of the lack of equality in Asian countries, if you're a woman, sometimes you will understand what it feels like to face injustice or unfairness. Uh, another one might be when some of us have been brought up in a very disadvantaged background for whatever reason. And so you look at that as you are, it's unfair compared to some of these other people that are around you and how they're further ahead because of certain advantages that they were able to have. It could be financial. It could be people that they know. And so they're, you know, the connections help them to do certain things. So you're like, this is unfair. Uh, even when I look at the society and the things that are happening around us, all we can say is that there's a lot of issues of fairness or unfairness and issues of injustice that we have to speak on. In fact, I think it seems as if our ability to detect unfairness or injustice is very innate in all of us. Some of us are a little bit more sensitive to those issues, but I would say just as a human being made in the image of God, that you and I are created to be able to see things that are unfair or things that are unjust or unjust and for you to speak out on those things. But it's not just in humans. 
And this is the part that's amazing. You can actually find in the animal world or animal kingdom, people or these animals, I was going to say they're people, but they're animals. Some of us treat animals like people. But anyway, you, you see these animals and they even have a sense of fairness and also justice. So I wanted to show you this video really quickly and just to give you a little bit uh, of a background, uh, Franz de Waal, he is a, a criminologist and an anthropologist uh, who pretty much that's a study of primates and studying the behavior of different animals. And he teaches psychology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia in the United States. And he is the professor of primate behavior. And what he did was he did an experiment that I found very interesting because he did an experiment with some monkeys. And what he wanted to find out is, do they understand if something is fair or unfair? And so I want you to watch what they did. He was giving a talk and he was showing the video and you'll, you'll hear the audience in the background. But I want you to watch these animals, the monkeys there, and if they understand this idea of fairness or even justice. So let's watch this together. Isn't it amazing that even monkeys have this awareness that something is unfair? Now the question I have for us as we're, we just watch that video and we're just kind of thinking about even in our own lives. When you think about unfairness or even of this idea of experiencing injustice. The question I, I, I want to kind of have us think about is when do we normally think about something being unfair or unjust? What I mean by that is simply this. We have to keep in mind just because we don't get something does not mean that it is unfair. Uh, let me elaborate a little bit more on this. It really depends on whether or not you were either promised something or you earned it. You, you work for something. And then you don't get whatever it is that you want from your hard work that oftentimes you feel like it is unfair or it is unjust. Uh, I, I was thinking about this and I said, let's just think about everyday things that might happen to some of us so, so we get some idea about this. Uh, once again, it really depends on whether it's promised to you or something that you've earned. So one thing that came to my mind was when we think about how we work for something, let's say you're waiting in line. It's a long line. And already you spent 10 minutes in line. So in some sense, you're working by just being in line because it's wasting your time. And all of a sudden, someone cuts in front of you and just totally ignores you and there you there, there's this person sitting standing right in front of you and a couple other people and right away you would be like uh I'm going, uh excuse me like you need to get back the line is starting over there why because you put the time and effort into this and this person did it and they just cut in front of line so it is unfair or unjust think about it this way as well for some of us if you were told that you were going to get something for hard work, let's say a promotion, or you're going to get some kind of reward, and as you put in the hard work, and then all of a sudden they're like, you know what, sorry, you're not going to get it, then that's when you start feeling the sense of injustice or even unfairness. Now, why is all this important for us? Because when you think about the gospel and salvation, you realize when you put it in that context is that sooner that we realize that you cannot earn 
or it's something that you don't deserve when you realize that you don't see things as a fairness or an unfairness issue. If you think about the gospel message and salvation and that it's a free gift that God gives you when you don't deserve it, that's when you realize that me being saved or many of you who've experienced this gospel message, it almost seems unfair in the sense of you didn't deserve it, but you received it. I think this is the reason why one of the biggest problems with this topic of fairness is that we always see it from our self-centered lens. That it's all about me. What is it in it for me? Why is it that when I put X amount of hours or do this kind of stuff, maybe even serving God and doing things, why don't I see the results? So it's all about performance, about what you do and what you don't do. And so what begins to happen is that because you're seeing everything from the self-centered view, that's why you're able to pick up, oh, that's not fair, or that's unjust. So the question I have for us this morning is, what if we saw everything in life from a God-centered lens? Then we can be able to distinguish what is fair and what's unfair. That's not surrounded by us but it's really on God. I love what D.A. Carson said in his commentary of the Gospel of John. He writes this, The person who loves his life will lose it. It cannot be otherwise, for to love one's life is a fundamental denial of God's sovereignty, of God's rights, and a brazen elevation of self to the apogee of one's perception and therefore an idolatrous focus on self, which is at the heart of all sin. Did you get that? That until we die to ourselves and we lose ourselves, and with a God-centered perspective in how we look at all things in life, then what happens is that you're going to start denying God's sovereignty in your life. You're going to start denying some of the things that he's trying to do in your life that's outside of your control. This is the reason why the root of a lot of sins in your life and a lot of the problems that you're facing is you have put yourself in the center. Rather than seeing everything from the lens of God, what is it that God's doing? Regardless of how difficult or hard the struggle may be, what is it that you're doing, God? Rather than complaining, say, why am I going through this? I'm just wondering what would happen to our church if we were filled with radical followers of Jesus Christ, disciples of Jesus, who would look everything in their life through the lens of God and to be able to say that he is sovereign, that he has every right to do whatever he wants to do, not only in my life, but in my family and also in this world. I'm wondering if there will be a greater trust I'm wondering some of you who have been anxious and can't even go to sleep if you would get a peaceful night of rest. I'm wondering if some of you who are feeling blah or meh, whatever it may be, that some of you will experience a greater joy and excitement and motivation in your life to do things that you might not want to do right now because you don't see things with the lens of God. As I mentioned, we're starting this three chapters that's going to be ahead of us. We're going to only cover chapter 9. But as we look at the next three chapters, it is one of the most difficult passages that the book of Romans talks about. And this is why it's important. Out of all the scriptures 
in the Bible, out of all the passages in the Bible, that these three chapters that we're going to be covering in the next three weeks probably is the best explanation for this concept of predestination. It is probably one of the best uh, descriptions of sovereignty of God and what it is that he's doing in our lives and in the world and and particularly in this context for the Israelite people. So today as we look at Romans chapter 9 verses 1 through 29, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul explains the importance of God in his sovereignty and how he has the freedom to choose whom he will save and whom he will have mercy towards and whom he will show his grace towards. And I pray that even though it's a difficult passage for us, I'm going to try to explain it as clearly as I can, that it will change our perspective as we look at our lives and all that he's doing and maybe those things he, have not, he hasn't done yet, but he will do according to his word that we can trust him and believe that that work of God will be carried out until completion. So let me give us the one thing. The one thing is simply this, that God sovereignly has the freedom now, that is important to understand that he has the freedom and it's sovereign. It means that he is uh, in control. He doesn't need us so that God sovereignly has the freedom to do whatever for his kingdom. That everything that he's trying to accomplish, everything that he is advancing forward, which is his kingdom because he's the king and we are the citizens. One of the things that we have to understand is that we have to trust that in his sovereign power that he has the freedom to do whatever he desires to do for his kingdom. And we're going to just jump right into this as we've been talking about how God sovereignly has the freedom to do whatever for his kingdom. There's two ways that we have to respond if you really believe this, that God is sovereignly has the freedom to do whatever he wants to do And that's going to be for his glory, for his kingdom. If you believe that, there needs to be two responses. And I want to talk about that. The first response is this, that we must respond with trust. That we must respond with trust. Even a greater trust than we have never trusted before. This kind of trust that we need. You know, it's kind of interesting because right after chapter 8, after he talks about that nothing will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord, He jumps into chapter 9 as if it's very abrupt because he's talking about predestination at this time and how God has chosen the Israelite people. But if you look at the whole progression of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 8, you realize there's like a sub-theme that God in his sovereignty chooses and does whatever he wants to do to accomplish his greater plan and mission. And he decided from long ago to choose the Israelite people. Why them? We don't know. He could have chose the the Mongols. I don't know. He could have chosen the Chinese people. But he decided to choose the Israelite people, a small group of people to be able to save the rest of the world and to be a light for the nations. So here is this whole idea that nothing will separate us from the love of God. And it's almost like a hard stop. And then he jumps into chapter 9. And it's important to understand as we get into chapter 9, that the response that we should get as we understand that he sovereignly has the freedom to do whatever he wants for his kingdom, that the first response should be this great level of trust, trusting God. 
Let me go ahead and read verse 1 through 3 first and mention something that I thought it was a very good transition. He says this, What I am telling you is true. The whole thing about God's love and nothing will separate us. And then he says, I speak as someone who belongs to Christ. I am not telling lies. God's Holy Spirit rules my thoughts and they tell me that I am right. I tell you this, I am very uh, sad deep inside myself. Let me, uh, sorry about that. I, I was reading in a different translation. Let me just read verse, starting from verse 3. For I wish, for, uh, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, let's stop here. I, I want to mention something as we're talking about trusting in God as he is sovereignly free to do whatever he wants to do is that right away we get a glimpse of Paul's heart. I think this is the part that was this, it's an incredible transition from talking about God's love and how he experienced it personally as he was once a, pro, a persecutor and a blasphemer and he did all these things to even kill Christians. As he talks about God's love, now he begins to focus in a little bit more of what he was feeling. So he was not only a thinker, incredible thinker, but he also felt in his heart and here Paul expresses his love and willingness to give up his salvation so that his fellow Jewish people can actually encounter Christ. Now you got to understand the gravity of this. That what he's saying is I am willing to give up my salvation if only that my people, the Jewish people, can come to know Jesus Christ. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's a great heart of not only love, but of sacrifice. And something that I was just thinking about was this. Many of us are not going to really fully understand this until you become a parent. I don't know how many times, there are many times when there's certain food, you know, as we're all eating as a family together, and I'm hungry and I want to eat that, but my boys or, you know, my daughter, if they want to eat that, what, what do I do? I'm sorry, this is for dad. You know, no. If, if you are a parent, you understand you are willing to sacrifice and forego and even be willing to get hungry so that your kids can be filled. So what is this relevance for us? If you have a heart that understands God's love and you want people that you care about and you love to experience as well, then what are some things that you're willing to let go of? Maybe a little bit of comfort. Maybe instead of getting seven hours of sleep, you'll get six because you're going to invest that one hour to love that person and help them to understand God's love. There's so many things in life that inconvenience us. That sometimes when you really love people and you're willing to, and you so desperately want to see them come to know Christ, you're willing to let go of your own comforts and your inconvenience. There's so many times when I'm meeting up with people and we're talking together and there's a situation that happened and every single time I'm like, what happened? And what is the response all the time? I was being selfish. I was thinking about myself. So here is one moment in time that you had an opportunity to stop thinking about yourself, think about that person, to genuinely love them, to be able to help them to encounter Christ. It could be in a huddle group. It could be in a life group gathering. It could be over coffee, over a meal. But because of you focusing on yourself, whether you have a lot of midterms going on or whether just a lot of stress at work, in that moment, you forget what it's all about. 
It's not about you. It's, you're looking everything through your self-centered lens. But if you look at it from God's lens and how this moment is a very kairos moment that you have to be able to influence this person or share, speak words of truth and life to this person, that that could be the decision on the brink of them coming to know Christ or not. I am challenging us. Are you willing to give up some of your comforts and some of the things that might be inconvenient for you because you have a heart for that person and for your life group? This is Paul. That he, he doesn't even go that far. Okay, Lord, I'll just give you another hour. He says, I would rather be sent to hell and be separated from Christ if that means that my fellow brothers and sisters can come to know Jesus Christ. In fact, other translations of this verse as great, of the phrase great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Listen to some of these other translations. The, uh, the New Living Translation says, my heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief. The message translation says, it's an enormous pain deep within me. And I'm never free of it. I'm not exaggerating. Christ and the Holy Spirit are my witnesses. The contemporary English version says this, my heart is broken and I am in great sorrow. The Living Bible says this, my heart is heavy within me and I grieve bitterly day and night because of you. Can I just ask us, when was the last time that your heart was heavy, that you were broken, and you were bitterly saddened, anguished, because there are people in your life that do not know Jesus Christ. You don't feel this for just anybody. It's for people that you love and you care about. Some of you who are watching, you have family members who don't know Jesus Christ. And you can go through life just centered around yourself and you forget, oh yeah, that's right. If they don't know Jesus Christ, they're going to spend a Christless eternity in hell. For some of us, it doesn't move us because we don't live for eternal things. We're living for the here and now, about your work, about your grades, about that promotion. It's all about you. But here's Paul. He, he got his priorities straight. It's not about the things of this world, but it's about eternal things. That here are my brothers and sisters who do not know Jesus Christ, and I will give up my salvation so they will come to know him. Oh, what would happen in our church if all of us who call ourselves the followers of Jesus Christ had this kind of heart, not only for your family, but for your roommates, for the people in your apartment, some of you who are at work, just going to work and seeing just your whole office, just knowing that many of them are going to spend a crisis eternity. When you think about your classrooms, when you're going over Zoom, you're seeing their faces and you realize that some of them don't know Jesus Christ. When you think about some of the members in your life group, do you care enough to be able to sacrifice and to give of yourself, your time, your energy, because your heart breaks because they don't know the love of Christ? It is this kind of heart and love and this burning desire for his fellow Jewish people to know Christ that now Paul begins to share about God's sovereign choice, about how he predestines people. So Paul reminds the people of two things so that they can learn how to trust in God's sovereignty. The first thing that he mentions is the Israelites' privilege. 
Let's go ahead and look at verse 4 and 5. It says this. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So pretty much what Paul is saying is this. Look at all the things that you Jewish people, my fellow brothers and sisters, look at all the things that we have. And as he's saying that we are so privileged beyond measure. Who else? What other group of people have all these things? Let me go ahead and list these seven things that he was mentioning. These are all privileges which belong to them as the people of God, a chosen nation that no other nation has, but it was for the Jewish people. So here's the first thing that we see here, that they have been adopted by God, that you have been chosen and you have been adopted by God. Here's another one that we saw as we just read. God's glory was revealed to them. I mean, who else was able to experience the pillar of fire by night and the cloud, pillar of cloud by day, that they saw miracles splitting of the Red Sea. They saw manna coming down from God's glory was being revealed to them. The third thing that we see was that they were given the covenants, the covenants that were made, the promises that God gave to the Israelite people. The fourth thing is that they were given the law so that they could know how to love God and obey God. So they were given the law. No other groups had the law that was coming directly from God. They did. That's a privilege. The fifth thing is this, that they had the privilege of worshiping him. That they could actually be in his presence. And sometimes we forget that it is a privilege to worship God. And the seventh and last, or the sixth thing is that they have the promise of a Messiah. That the Messiah was going to come, which is then the seventh thing is that Christ was going to come through their lineage. This is a privilege that the Jewish people had. And it wasn't until Jesus Christ came down and the Messiah showed himself to be son of God that now other people who are not Jewish were able to be a part of this. Do you remember the call? that God gave to the Israelite people in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 through 8. I'm going to read it for us. It says this, For you were a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has what? It says chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out of a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. See, God in his sovereignty in his freedom to choose, he chose the Israelite people, made them into his treasure possession, and threw them in their obedience to God as that God gave them the law and revealed himself to them, the glory manifesting, them being able to worship God, and then Jesus Christ coming down this lineage. Now we see that they are so privileged. How about us this morning? 
when you look at that verse, and when you think about all that we have as Christ followers, do you see yourself privileged? Not in a way that you're arrogant and say, I'm better than everyone else, but you realize you're humbled. Because God, why did you save me and not my roommate? God, why did you reach out to me and seek after me when I was sinning, but you came to do the saving? That you reached out to me so that I can come to know you. Because I was seeking after all these other things in the world. I was lost. But Christ, you came and you found me. Maybe another way that will help you to think about this is where would you be right now if you didn't have Christ? And I'm going to be honest with you this morning and simply say some of you, there will be no difference. You'll still be pursuing the things of this world. It's all about your career. It's all about your grades. It's all about the interns. It's all about the job. There will be no difference if Christ was not in your life. The only difference is you will have more time to do other things and sin. Because you don't have to come to life group. You don't have to come to anything. You don't have to read your Bible. What is it about being a Christ follower that you get this overwhelming sense of your, your, it's a privilege. It's not a right, but it's a privilege. And you're honored. You're humbled. So here's Paul. After he shares his heart, that I wish that I would be, even, I would be separated from Christ so that you could come to know Jesus, that my fellow Jewish people can know Jesus. He begins to try to rationalize or uh, use their intellect and begin to explain and reason. Think about all the privileges we have as Israelite people. The second thing that you will notice is that as we talk about how our response should be one of trust, is that not only do we have to see the Israelites' privilege, but I want you to know we've got to see the Lord's prerogative. Those of you, English is a second language. Prerogative simply means the ability uh, to do something because it is their right. And so pretty much it's God's prerogative. That means that he will do whatever he wants to do. He doesn't need any input from us. It's his right to do whatever he wants to because he's God and we're not. That's how you're going to be able to fully trust when you realize it's God's prerogative. God is the one who's calling the shots. See, that's the problem with many of our lives. God's not calling the shots for you. You are. You're, you're the one in the driver's seat. Just look at your life. And it's only when you go into a ditch, only when you realize you ran into a tree, then you're like, oh, God, help me. This is the reason why there's so much stuff going on in this world. It's because everyone wants to run their own life. And one of the things I've learned, and I had to learn the hard way, and I keep on learning this, is that God is always better at doing things than me. God is good at running the world. I'm not. I'm not even good at running my own life. And so it's the Lord's prerogative to do whatever. And when you understand that, there will be trust. So what do we see here? The failure of the Jewish people to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul begins to say, hey, look, we're privileged. Look at all the stuff that we have that no one else has. And then he begins to turn the argument and says, if you really understand this gospel message, that it's God who's in control. It's God who's doing something in your life. He, he believes that they will surrender themselves and realize that they are chosen by God. 
For the Jewish people, they believed, and this is important for you to note this, and this is where I'm going to try to unpackage some of these th concepts that might be hard to understand. For the Jewish people, they believed that as a race, like an ethnic group, that God chose them and that they were saved just purely by being Jewish that they were saved. That was their paradigm. But Paul, right now, after he shares about nothing will separate us from the love of God, he goes, my heart breaks for you. I'm even willing to be separated from Christ so that you can know Jesus Christ. He talks about all the privileges that they have. Now what you will see is Paul is going to argue that ethnicity, by being Jewish, is not the ground for salvation. Just because you were born as a Jew to a Jewish family who comes from another Jewish family, he says that is not the grounds for salvation. Because they were so proud that they were Jewish that they thought, oh, you know what? We're Jewish, so God has chosen us. So we don't, we don't need to do anything. We, we just have to obey the laws here, and then we're saved. And Paul is like, no, you're not. And the interesting part of this story, and I want you to note this, is he gives two illustrations. Listen to me carefully, because you've got you to gotta, you gotta use your brains this morning. Like I said, this is a very hard concept, but I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible. He uses two illustrations to help people to see that your salvation is not based on your ethnicity. And when you, once, once you see the illustration that he gives, you'll be like, oh, that makes sense. Let's go ahead and read verse 6 through 13. And this will give you some illumination to this. He says this, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Let's continue in verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, through, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purposes, purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. So listen to me carefully. I'm going to try to expound on this. As he was arguing that even though we have all these privileges, that does not mean you're saved because you need to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If, if I could put it this way, it is like some of you who are watching me and you've been brought up in a Christian home. And you've gone to church your whole life. And you're sitting there week after week and you assume that you're saved, but you're not. I don't know how many people we have in our church who have a lot of church background. They know a lot of Bible, but they are not saved. That could be you. You know all the right answers. You know all the stories in the Bible, but you are not saved. Because you have not fully trusted in Jesus Christ for your only means of salvation. It is not only an intellectual consent, consent but also it is about the heart where there's regeneration. So you can be a Christian by name and by label,
but you're still living for yourself. You are not saved. Now, I'm not trying to make you doubt, but I would say you should examine your heart. Have you really trusted? Have you really believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? So what Paul is trying to say is this. Listen, the reason why it's not by ethnicity is because he shares the story of Abraham who had two sons. Who were his two sons? Ishmael and Isaac. And what he says was this. That he chose Isaac. And then even though both of them were his sons, though that Ishmael was born from Hagar and Isaac was born through uh, Sarah, what he's simply saying is the promise came through Isaac. And because that was part of the promise, now we have this hope. Now some people will be thinking, Oh, okay, I, I get it. See, you still haven't proved your point, Paul. Because don't forget, Isaac is Jewish. I'm Jewish, so I'm still saved. Paul says, no, uh You're not paying attention. That's what he's saying. So you know what he does? He gives another illustration to completely kill that notion. Because he then shares about Isaac, another generation. And he had two sons. And his two sons were Esau and Jacob. So some people might have thought that, okay, Abraham's twin, Isaac and Esau, uh, they, they were different from Ishmael because Ishmael come from, came from Hagar. So then we're okay now. But he goes, no. Because when you think about the story of Isaac and Rebekah and having Esau and Jacob, what he simply says is that they were both Jewish, yes, but Paul wanted to show that it was not about ethnicity by saying what? The promise came before they were even born. This is important. They weren't even born, but the promise was already given. And God spoke to Rebecca and says the younger, the older will serve the younger. So what Paul is simply saying is, if you think it's about ethnicity, I want you to know that some of these promises were even given before they were even born. God chose the Israelite people, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be saved, especially now that Christ came into this world. You've got to believe in him to be the Messiah. So even though both Jacob and Esau were Jewish, Paul wanted to help them to see that it was a promise that came even before they were born that caused them to now have this salvation if those who believe. I think normally in the Jewish culture, the thing that is interesting about the story that he gave is that the oldest one will always be the one who will receive the blessings because they're the oldest son. But here we see Jacob, who was known as the deceiver or the trickster, whatever you want to look at it, is we see here that Jacob, the younger son, was chosen. This is what's important. The younger one was chosen. Why? God's prerogative. Instead of picking Esau, God decided to choose Jacob. And it was through the choice that God made to show salvation to the rest of the world. It, it reveals to us it is not based on choice or our own decision. It is based on God's prerogative. Whatever he wanted to do. It was God who was sovereign to choose what he wanted to choose. 
I think this is something that we really have to understand if you're going to trust in God. When you think about all the privileges that you have in Jesus Christ, when you think about all that we can enjoy that's ours in Christ, our spiritual inheritance, when you begin to realize that all that God is doing, he's doing it because why? Not only is he good and he is loving and that he is patient, he's kind. If you know these things about God, you have to trust that whatever's going on in your life, it is for your good and it's for his glory. Can I ask us this morning, do you believe that? I know some of you are struggling during this time. Some of you are isolated, feeling alone. Some of you have gone back to some old habits, some old sins. Now it's gripping you. You are in bondage. You are struggling through. And you're wondering to yourself, is God really there? Is he really powerful enough to work in my life? Some of you are struggling with other things that have come up, things back home. Maybe some of you are feeling different pressures from different situations in your life. And it's hard to trust in God. But this is where we have to think about what is it that God is doing right now in my life? What is he doing around the world that I see? What is he doing in Hong Kong right now? I'm wondering if you can see the privilege that you have to be not only alive, but to be in Hong Kong, to be here in our church, to be in community, and the things that you're able to experience. And you realize, wow, God is watching over me. He's taking care of me. I could trust him. And when you think about God's prerogative, that he does things without even your saying it, but he knows you more than you know yourself. And so he's bringing things your way. It might seem bad, but he's trying to humble you. He's trying to work in your life. But some, what do we do? We start complaining. We start calling up people and start complaining to them. That just shows that you don't trust. You still think that you are in control. You still think things are good for you because you, you are the captain of your own boat. And what God is saying is that if you really believe that everything that I do, I do it freely in my sovereign will because I'm good and because I am loving, because I am compassionate and because I'm merciful, do you trust that what you're going through is going to be for your good and for my glory? And I think for many of us, we have a hard time. So let me share a story that Max Lucado shared in his book, Gentle Thunder. Some of you might have heard this before, but this is one of my favorite stories. I thought it was powerful. Because when you think about God's prerogative to choose, when you think about what God is doing in your life, that's when you begin to realize, man, like God is good. That he knows me. He knows what he's doing. I could trust him. Max Lucado in his book, Gentle Thunder, shares about a Cinderella story that, ha uh, that happened in Disneyland that triggered this memory. Listen to what he writes. My friend Kenny and his family had just returned from Disney World. I saw a sight I'll never forget, he said. He and his family were inside Cinderella's castle. It was packed with kids and parents. Suddenly, all the children rushed to one side. Had it been a boat, the castle would have tipped over because Cinderella had entered. Cinderella, the princess, a gorgeous young girl with each hair in place, flawless skin and beaming smile. She stood waist deep in a garden of kids, each wanting to touch and be touched. For some reason, Kenny turned and looked towards the other side of the castle. 
It was now vacant except for a boy, maybe seven or eight years old. His age was hard to determine because of the disfigurement of his body. Dwarfed in height, face deformed, he stood watching quietly and wistfully, holding the hand of his older brother. Don't you know what he wanted? He wanted to be with the children. He longed to be in the middle of the kids reaching for Cinderella, calling her name. But can't you feel his fear? Fear of yet another rejection. Fear of being taunted again, mocked again. Don't you wish Cinderella would go to him? Guess what? She did. She noticed the little boy. She immediately began walking in his direction. Politely but firmly inching through the crowd of children, she finally broke free. She, she placed a kiss on his face, but Jesus did more than Cinderella. Cinderella gave only a kiss. When she stood to leave, she took her beauty with her. The boy was still deformed. What if Cinderella had done what Jesus did? What if she assumed his state? What if she had somehow given him her beauty and taken his disfigurement? That's what Jesus did. Make no mistake. Jesus gave more than a kiss. He gave his beauty. He paid more than a visit. He paid for our mistakes. He took more than a minute. He took away our sins. This is who Jesus is. All of us are deformed and disfigured because of sin. Just look at our lives. It's a mess. And in the midst of that, in the midst of the mud, in the midst of our dirtiness and our messiness, Jesus Christ comes, takes all of that, clean, 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 uh, clean, cleanses us. He cleanses us of our sins. He washes us clean. And from there, what does he do? He gives his beauty, turns our ashes into beauty. And he takes upon all that, the weight of sin upon his shoulder when he died on the cross. I don't know about you, but the more you begin to focus on the cross and make it all about Jesus, you're going to be able to trust, especially during this time, more than ever before. Why? Because, once again, God in His prerogative and understanding the privilege that we have that's in Jesus Christ, you realize that everything He's doing is going to be for our good and for His glory. And as we are finishing off in this last point, let me just remind us once again that there must be a response when you really understand that when God sovereignly has the freedom to do whatever he wants to do for his kingdom, then the first thing, as I mentioned, is that we have to respond with trust. The second thing that we see here is that we have to respond with thankfulness. Let me just go ahead and just try to help us unpackage this, this section here. There's a lot of Old Testament reference, so you need to understand what Paul is trying to drive home. What he's doing now is he's continuing to make his case about God's freedom to choose to do whatever he wants to do for his advancement of his kingdom. And there's probably a lot of people still asking questions. Paul, like, how about this? What about this? And so you will notice Paul is addressing what God is sovereignly doing. And the first thing that he's sovereignly doing, and we already have seen this earlier, is that God is sovereignly choosing. 
He sovereignly chooses. Let me just go ahead and read 14 verse 18. This is what it says. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, this is part that you need to understand. There's a lot of Old Testament. I'm not going to have time to go into all of it. This coming week, we'll try to look at some of those passages. But what I need to un- for you to understand, the question that now people might be asking is this. Is there injustice on God's part? If you're Paul, if you're talking about God is choosing whoever he wants to choose, it's his prerogative, then wait a minute, think about this. Is this not fair? That's what people are probably thinking. That if God is such a just God, why would he even send anybody to hell? And I know these are questions that some of us might have asked in our own spiritual journey. If God is so loving and God is so just, why would he send anyone to hell? Should he not save them? If he, okay, fine, I'll give you that much that he predestines people. But why would he predestine some people to go to hell? Shouldn't he save them? And what I want you to understand and what he's trying to say is this. That when it's where you start, this understanding that makes all the difference in the world. Let me explain what I mean by where you start. If some of you believe that everyone is really good and that we all deserve to go to heaven or at least have a fair shot to go to heaven, then that's the wrong starting point. He already argued in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. He argued how we are all sinful and we fall the short fall short of the glory of God. So if you want to talk about fairness and justice, that means that every single one of us should be condemned and we should be sent to hell. That's fair because God is holy and we're not. So what Paul is trying to argue and help us to rearrange our mind is he's trying to say, think about where you're starting. If you think that we're all good and we all deserve a chance to go to heaven, then that's where you lean towards works trying to perform, trying to do all these things, but you're going to fall short. But if you start from the other end and say, we all are in hell right now, if we don't know Jesus Christ, start there. Then if he chooses to save some, then once again, it's his prerogative. It's a different mindset when you think about this idea of predestination. Now, let me go a little bit into the example that he's giving. Because where you start is important. We have all sinned, and what we do deserve is death and hell. But God, in his mercy, decided to save some people. Now, the reason why he gives these next illustration is to prove that exact point. In order to argue his case, Paul uses Moses and Pharaoh. If you know your Bibles, right away your mind should be going 100 miles an hour. Because when you think about the story of Moses and think about the story of Pharaoh, you realize what I just shared, that all of us deserve nothing, but what we do deserve is hell. And when God chooses some, it's because out of his love and patience and love, uh, mercy for us, that's where it's going to make sense. What he does is he quotes Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, and Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. 
And if you remember the story in Exodus chapter 33, it's about Israel's idolatry. And while Moses was up on the mountain worshiping God, trying to hear from God, getting the Ten Commandments, you'll notice the Israelite people on the ground, they, they decided, you know what, Moses is taking too long, so we're going to worship and we're going to make this golden calf. Do you remember that? And in that moment, it would have been just and fair if God destroyed all of them. He would have been really fair because they were worshiping other gods. And he's a jealous God. But what happens in the story in Exodus chapter 33? Instead of killing everybody, because that's what they deserve, God only killed 3,000. Something like, that's 3,001 too many. But think about from where you start. If everyone should have been killed, but only 3,000 were killed, we would have been like, oh, that's his mercy. That's his grace. Does that make sense? It's where you start that's important. Now, with that being said, he then uses the story of Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 9. And you know the story very well. Moses then approaches Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And it's amazing because when you read the story in parallel, you will see how many times Moses says, let my people go. And it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then when you read from chapter to chapter, you realize it switches over and says, the Lord hardened his heart. Why is this important? It's because God, in his mercy, this is what's important, in his mercy is giving Pharaoh an opportunity to repent and let the people go. He didn't even have to give a warning. He could have destroyed Pharaoh and used whatever happened for his glory. But for literally 10 to 11 times all throughout the book of Exodus, in that story of Moses and Pharaoh, it was this back and forth, let my people go. Moses, uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, and then it says, the Lord hardened his heart, the Lord hardened his heart, and you see this pattern that's going on. The reason why this is important is because what you see is the sovereignty of God and human responsibility involved. That means that when God is moving towards us and he's bringing circumstances, he's bringing people to speak to us, and we harden our heart and we don't want to obey God, then what God is saying is, saying is that then your, your heart is hard. If this is what you decide, we're going to move in this direction. I'm going to harden your heart. Now, you could say that's unfair, but we have a choice. And when we choose to disobey then what God says is this, I love you. I'm trying to get your attention. I'm sending circumstances to get your attention. I want you to turn away from that, what you are doing. I want you to turn away from it. You're on this path that the bridge is out and you're going to fall over the cliff. I'm sending people your way to get your attention. But some of you are just completely disobeying and you're just kept on going. And that's when God will say, if that's what you decide, then for my glory, you will then keep on going in that direction. God's sovereignty and human responsibility go together. That's why I, I, I love this idea of how God can be consistent with two people, but then one turns around in repentance and the other doesn't. That other person, they do not turn around. And that's why Charles Spurgeon he shares something that I thought was really insightful. He says this, The same sun 
which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. Huh. I just realized that when there are two people and God in his love is speaking to both of them, one, their hearts are melted and they turn to Christ and other harden their hearts. You see that. Even when you try to show love to somebody, some people are softened in their hearts and go, oh, I'm so thankful, thank you. And other people are like, I don't need your love. Don't, 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 don't do that. I don't want that. So the sun that can melt wax is the very thing that can also harden the ground and make it into clay. But it depends on how you respond. That's why in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, it says this, but by the same word, the heaven and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. That's judgment. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So one day, if you disobey God and you do not receive him as your Lord and Savior, we see here there's going to come a day of judgment and you will be judged. And the fire, which is hell, that's where you're headed. You are headed for hell. He goes on and says, do not, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. So what God is trying to say is, you've got to listen to me carefully. Just like God was giving Pharaoh an opportunity to turn. What Paul is saying to the Israelite people is, listen, you are not saved by your ethnicity. And I gave you proofs why. But it's God who's being patient with you so that you will turn away from your wicked ways and turn to Jesus Christ. Some of you right now, God is patient with you. You're making a mess in your own sin totally disobeying, doing your own thing. And God could literally kill you right now. He could close all the doors, all the things that you thought you had. He could wipe it out if he wants to do that. But he's, he doesn't force you. He's waiting. He wants you to repent. That's a human responsibility. He wants you to repent and turn to him so that you can experience the fullness of life that he has promised unto you. That's His mercy. That's His grace. That's His sovereign love for us. That instead of forcing us, that even though a thousand years, it will be like a day, but even a day might seem like a thousand years because He is waiting. So here's God who's sovereignly choosing, but you will also see He's also calling. I'm going to close with this last section, and I'm just going to summarize it as I read it, and then I'm going to summarize the points. Verse 19 through 29, it says this. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is a molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out 
of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he has he said in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries, cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel may uh, Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, would we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What we notice here, I'm going, to close, I'm going to close with this. I'm going to try to summarize this section as best as I can. He's quoting different verses from the Old Testament. And he's simply saying is this, God has a calling. Not only for the Israelites, but he has a calling for you. And we don't know his full plan. But in many ways, that's good for us. Because if we knew what he was doing, and if he told us everything that we ought to do, we would run away. We will disobey. So God tells us just enough so that not only can we trust, but we'll realize that there's a call upon my life. And he's giving these verses because he's saying this. You cannot tell the potter who is God, and here we are, the clay, to say, God, do this for me. I want you to do it this way. What, what he's simply saying is it's God who's calling you, and he will do what he wants to do in your life. The reason why he then quotes all these other verses, Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22 to 23, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. These are all Old Testament passages that we just read. The reason why he gives these verses is to help illuminate that God is going to fulfill every single promise and every single purpose that he has as he calls his people. Here's a part that's most important that you'll see this. The calling was for God to raise up a remnant of Jewish people who will turn to Jesus as their Lord and Savior and who have not turned away to other things. And then he is going to raise up Gentile believers, those who are non-Jews, so that they can come together and become a new people. That is the calling, that we will become the church, the new community, so that this gospel message will go forth. He still has a plan for Israel and the Israelite people but he says it's going to be through the remnant. And then all the Gentiles will be grafted into this bigger plan of God so that we could create a whole new community. That's why in the book of Ephesians, it talks about how he has broken the enmity between us and God and between Jews and Gentiles. And he's bringing them together in unity so that the calling of God upon our lives is so that we can live in fellowship with one another and with God and so that we could then proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. So once again, God, sovereignly, what he does is that he has the freedom to do whatever he wants for his kingdom. And when we understand that the response should be, what? Greater trust and a greater thankfulness. Because what you begin to see is that God is doing something 
that I don't fully understand, but God is doing something and I want to be a part of what he's doing. That's why he is the potter, I am the clay. Shape me, mold me, do whatever you need to do, Lord. That's why he's wanting and waiting and patiently wanting us to repent. He could destroy you. He could destroy me, but he's being patient like he was with Pharaoh, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. Paul is saying, don't harden your heart, Israelite people. My people, don't harden your heart. He's waiting for you to come. And when we understand that, then that's where we're going to experience the joy and loving God. That's why, once again, the one thing is that God suddenly has the freedom to do whatever for his kingdom. And this is what the gospel is all about. How many of us were really seeking after God? We weren't. We're seeking after the things of this world. We're living for ourselves, but God sought after us. We're living in sin, but God came and he saved us. That's why you can trust in him. That everything that he's doing, he's doing it for our good and for his glory. That's why our hearts are filled with thankfulness. Because of what he has done and what he's doing and what he will do. Let me just give us some next steps to think about. And then we'll pray together. The first thing as you think about this, I want to just encourage us, stay humble. There's no room for pride. Every single time there's pride in our hearts, that just shows you you're not understanding the gospel. You think you somehow earned or performed something. That's why you take pride in this. Stay humble. Some people believe, Pastor, how do you stay humble? You always say, how do you stay humble? I think one of the best ways to stay humble is just to remember your gospel story. Just remember your testimony. Remember that time, that car accident? You could have died. Do you remember that one time that, that what was going on with your family? He used circumstances and things to bring you where you are now. Don't forget that. Stay humble. Every time you forget, remind yourself of that. The second thing is this. Speak the gospel to yourself and to others. Be fluent in this gospel language. Because every time when I listen to some of us talk, I realize this person is not gospel-centered. It doesn't mean you don't love Jesus. It doesn't mean that you don't know the gospel. But the language acquisition, uh, acquisition is not very great because you're still operating in this human paradigm. So speak the gospel. When you get discouraged, how do you speak the gospel to your discouragement? When you fail, how do you speak the gospel to your failure? Another thing I realize is some of you, you are on, you are on the precipice. You are on the brink of breakthrough. But you know what happens? You get pressed, you get pressed. God is pressing you to go through that barrier so you can experience greater freedom. But as soon as you get here, it's uncomfortable. You don't like it. You feel like, you feel like a loser. You feel like I'm failing and all this. And what do you do? You back away. You quit. And I'm thinking to myself, God is working in your life to break that area of your life, to set you free of control, to break you free for people-pleasing, to break you free of your self-sufficiency. That's why he's putting all this stuff on your life. But you pull away. And you know what I say? You know what? If you don't learn it now, if you're a college student, you're going to learn it when you start working. Some of you who are single adults, if you don't learn it now, you know, you know, who, you know how you're going to learn it? And there's going to be carnage. It's going to be your future spouse and your children. You're going to learn this lesson that he's been trying to teach you when there's less collateral damage so that you could be a blessing, but now you're going to have to learn it with your spouse and your children. I don't know about you, but when I think about that, if I were a single person, I was thinking about them like, Lord, 
I don't want them to suffer because of things that I need to work on and repent of. I want to work on it now. So I want to challenge some of us. When we think about the gospel, some of you, you are so close to a breakthrough, but because you love yourself, it's all about you, you pull away. Don't quit. Persevere. Go through it. And then you're going to find freedom on the other end. The third thing is this. Serve others. There are some of you who are like, no one loves me. No one reaches out to me. No one's doing this for me. And I'm telling you right now, first of all, no one likes you if you keep on doing that. I'm just being honest with you. Because all you are, you're sucking everything from everyone. People's energy, people's time. You make it all about you. Stop thinking about you because you know why? This is the crazy thing. I'm going to share some news to you. It's going to be crazy. That sometimes when you stop thinking about yourself, thinking about others, you're going to find that joy that you want. You're going to find that peace that you want. You're going to find that sense of purpose that you want. You're going to find that motivation that you want. It's all screwed up. We got it backwards. We think that if I could just meet this, my need, my need, me, that you're going to somehow. Have you ever, have you ever been like locked up in a room? during like certain seasons where you don't even take a shower for a couple days, how do you feel? And all you do is eat panda roo, uh, 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 deliveroo and pan, food panda. And you're eating all these greasy stuff. Some of you are like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try something different. There's these food things where they bring food to me and I can choose all the healthy stuff. But you know what I'm talking about? You start getting constipated because you're not moving around. You count your like, steps and you're like, oh my God, only 500 steps. When I used to do 10,000, you're like, oh my God, my life's... You know that feeling? That feeling that you feel when you're in that kind of like space is the kind of feeling that you feel when you make it all about yourself. But start serving others. Start finding ways to get involved. Then what you're doing is you're getting out of your comfort zone. That's like you're, you're, you're exercising. That's like, it's like, no thank you, food panda. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to cook my own food. I'm going to eat this and I'm going to get strong. And then you're going to take a shower. Even though you're not going to see anybody, just take a shower. You're like, wow, I feel so clean. And you can look in the mirror and you can say to yourself, you look good, dude. And then you can be like, yes, you will, your life will be radically changed. Serve others. The last thing is this, is that start and end the day with gratitude or thanksgiving. Just practice it. Try it. When you wake up, God, thank you for another day. I don't know if I'm going to have a day after tomorrow, but all I know is that I have today. I praise you. I worship you for who you are. Thank you for giving me life. Thank you for allowing me to sleep and wake up that I didn't die in my sleep because I have sleep apnea. Like, thank you, Lord Jesus, that I can actually breathe and live. And I look out. It's a sunny day. It's been so cloudy in the previous weeks. But today is bright. Today is awesome. And I worship you and I praise you because you are great. I thank you for my salvation, that I have hope and joy and love that no one has experienced before. And then after a long day with meeting people and going and working and online, your eyes are going, and you're like, oh my God. And your day is just full and then as you're about to go to sleep you can just say God thank you thank you for a full day thank you that I'm alive thank you for giving me the blessings thank you Lord for being able to use me to bless other people can you imagine when you live like this knowing that God has sovereignly chosen you in his freedom he has chosen you not that you deserve it 
but He has chosen you. And then you respond in thanksgiving and in trust. And He's doing things for His kingdom now. He's building up the church. He's building up what His plan to spread the gospel to the ends of this earth. You could trust in Him. You could be thankful that you get to be a part of it. So to say, God, thank you for all that you're doing. That out of the millions and billions of people you, have cho- you could have chosen, you have chosen me. So I'm going to ask us right now, can we just stand and I'm going to uh, pray for us. And as I pray for us, uh, we're, we're just going to sing one song. And I, I want it to be a declaration. Once again, Satan can't read your mind. So let's declare it out. Like this we know. We know this. Because it's the truth of God. It's the word of God. So Lord, I just thank you once again for this morning to remind us, Lord, we didn't deserve anything. We couldn't earn it. No matter how hard we try to perform and try to be good, Lord, the gospel just reminds us. And we we don't even need reminders. We see ourselves We see the sinfulness of our hearts. We see how far we have fallen from your glory. We see our disobedient hearts. We see, Lord, that heart that is so prone to wander. But you, in your patience, waited. And you're still waiting for us to turn and turn to you. And I pray, Lord, that you will fill us with this joy that we are talking about and a heart of trust and a heart of thankfulness that we can really believe that everything that you're doing It's for your glory and for our good. So we pray, Lord Jesus, that as you are working in us and through us, that, Lord, we could always stay humble and we could always be grateful because you are worthy of all our praise. And we know this because you are our God. We love you, Lord. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.